Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended, nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including, but not limited to, crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions. You're listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets, the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance, presented by CF Benchmarks. I'm Ken O'Delaga, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst. Hi, everybody. Thank you very much indeed for joining us for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. Today, we are joined by CF Benchmarks' Head of Product, Gando who is uh, going to talk us through um, the new CF Bitcoin interest rate curve, the first comprehensive interest rate uh, borrowing rate for Bitcoin uh, published by a regulated benchmark administrator. Really quite something quite special. And of course, um, we are also joined by my friend and colleague, uh, Gabe Selby, CFA, our resident in-house analyst. And it's going to be um, quite an interesting talk. So Gando, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Can you talk us through right, right from the very, very beginnings of what exactly the CF Bitcoin interest rate curve is and what it does? Sure. So, yeah, first of all, great to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. And yeah, I'm pretty excited to tell you about and tell the world about uh, a bit more about the BERT, the Bitcoin interest rate curve. At a glance, it's really a measure of the time value of Bitcoin. So that's the headline. If you want to think about Bitcoin as an asset, like any other asset in the world, it has a time value. And we're trying to reflect that time value for people to have a better understanding of how to think about this asset and how to think of it over time. Yeah. Igando, now it's great to have you here. Um, so when we say time value, that's you know a pretty jargony kind of finance term. How do you explain that, I guess, to more of the layman when we talk about time value and time value of money and how we should discount assets in the future. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, at any point in time, no matter what asset you have, there's a price for that asset today and there's a price for that asset tomorrow. And you essentially have choices between things that you own, things that you want to buy. And a dollar, for example, you know, you can invest a dollar and get a dollar plus something else tomorrow. So you can get, you know, more for your dollar over time. And in the same way, you know, you have gold, you have commodities, everything really in the world that has prices over time essentially has a price today and has a price later. And that is a reflection of its its value over time. It, it sort of encapsulates the utility of any asset, it encapsulates the scarcity and, and various other elements as, as we'll discuss. Sure, and um, Gando, just um, to really nail it down in people's um, understanding and perceptions, um, I think if we talk about it as analogous to, you know, quite well-known interest rates or borrowing rates 
um, well-known within the financial community, like Euribor, uh, before it was deprecated, LIBOR, and, and its replacement, SOFIR, if that's a correct way of pronouncing the acronym. Um, is that the kind of thing that we're looking at, or does that sort of, is it so discontinuous with conventional lending rates that we really can't think of it that way? Yeah, there, there are similarities and, and there are differences, but the way people should think about it is this is done from the perspective of a Bitcoin holder. So the starting point is, you know, I'm hodling some Bitcoin. And the question is, can I just, do I have to just keep it in a, in a cold wallet or can I earn something on that Bitcoin? Because that Bitcoin has value over time, let's say positive value over time, then, you know, I should end up at the end of the year with maybe 3% more Bitcoin than what I started the year with. So in that sense, it's analogous to LIBOR where from the perspective of the asset holder, somebody who has already Bitcoin, you know, what can they do with it to earn more Bitcoin by the end of the year? Yeah. And when we think about, you know, traditional asset classes, time value, discount rates, stuff like this, I think what's important here is um, we've got, you know, these commodity type assets, which in large, you know, a lot of people consider Bitcoin to maybe fall under that sleeve to some degree. These assets, I think it's a bucket that we would consider to be like a non-carry traditional asset. So when Gondo was talking about how do we approach the BERC, the Bitcoin interest rate curve? What's its significance for a Bitcoin holder, someone who's strategically long Bitcoin? Well, it's something that technically adds a new element that is pretty novel to that type of investor because you finally have some sort of mechanical mechanism that's going to generate you know, a positive carry to an asset that before really there was no alternative or there was no option for that. And and some of the stuff it unlocks is is the we we say, you know, like it's gonna unlock all the debt markets and credit markets and help all of these markets function. But to take a step back for for the users for a second, like somebody might say, well, why should I care about debt markets, right? For for Bitcoin or for the crypto ecosystem. Like who cares? I just wanna buy these coins and and they go up in value over time. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The difference between buying something for the long term or for the short term is that you are undertake you're you're taking all the upside and you're taking all the downside, right? So that's no different than buying equity in, you know, the McDonald's company, right? You and if McDonald's stock goes up, it goes up, and if the company crashes, you go down with it. That, on the other hand, is the way for the world to slice risk and reward and have somebody come in who might not necessarily be wanting to take all the upside risk and all the downside risk. They want to have a slice of risk and a slice of reward. So they take very limited risk and maybe maybe only take like 3-5% of the reward. And that's really, really important in bringing more people into the ecosystem that can play different roles in, in different parts of you know the functioning of the whole markets. Sure. So, so essentially, uh, and and you can actually put this in perspective probably better than uh, any of us, uh, Gando. Um, what the CF Burke actually represents is probably the first comprehensive attempt to provide the facility to have an insight, visibility into an overall lending rate, borrowing and lending rate for Bitcoin. Uh, really, to to actually be the equivalent in uh, cryptocurrencies, or at least Bitcoin, to these interest rates that we mentioned earlier. Is, is really that the kind of scope that we're talking about here? 
Yeah, and it and it actually goes, you know, beyond Bitcoin because what happens is, you know, as you've seen in, in the crypto market so far, you know, there's protocols over here like doing DeFi things, maybe with the yields of like, you know, 30%, 50%, sometimes over 100%. And there's nothing for people to look and say, okay, where is where's my guidepost? Where's my baseline? And and why are these guys giving me, you know, a 200% return and, and yield on my money? So I think the space as we've seen and, and because of the problem with like centralized lenders and stuff, the price, the whole thing is incredibly fragmented. You know, not everybody has the same information. Capital doesn't flow efficiently across like all parts of the ecosystem. And, and that fragmentation and asymmetry of just information is causing a lot of secluded places for bad actors to, to do things. And, and sometimes even just not transparency for like regular participants who want to just try to make like some money, but they see like 30% and you're like, oh, maybe 30% is reasonable. Maybe it's not, but how do you, in, you know, in traditional finance, you have, you know, the, the federal Fed funds rate, like, and, and then everything builds as a spread to that. And that's what we're trying to provide is something that acts as a benchmark that people can measure risk reward against it. I think that's where as a benchmark provider, you know, that's where I think it's a great opportunity to kind of step in, really look at the problems that we were trying to solve with Burke. And say, okay, well, we've got you know our our BRR, you know, in uh, Bitcoin reference rate index, which settles all the CME futures uh, on Bitcoin, right? And we understand how carry trades can generate you know positive yields for investors, institutional investors that are trying to you know generate uh, some sort of uh, you know let's just say like yield or coupon generation on that strategy. So if if we can take you know the 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 inception of the BRR through the venue of the CME futures and kind of get this implied interest rate, right? That is grounded to reality that serves as a good baseline rate where institutional players can, you know, look at it and say, this will be my benchmark. This could be my floor. And I can use kind of some subjective, um, you know, additional layering based on other costs of capital to to adjust that final rate and uh, have a more realistic grounded to reality uh, interest rate for users. Yeah, it's like the S&P 500, right? Like if I'm investing on my app, like even if I'm not like a professional who's benchmarked to the S&P 500, I want to know, you know, am I doing well? You know, maybe maybe I'm buying, you know, Disney and Disney is like maybe a more risky stock or Netflix. They're more risky than the S&P 500, but I expect to make more money than the S&P 500, right? So that's my... That's my baseline of, you know, reasonable, you know, maybe minimal risk and reward, but then I can price and and think about everything else in relation to that. And if something is promising me more return, it probably comes with more risk and I can think transparently about what those risks and rewards are rather than having it in this like dark room that is the, the crypto, the crypto world where everybody's like trying to feel their way. But the information is so scattered and the activity is so fragmented that, and the liquidity is so fragmented that it's hard for people to think about those things on the same terms. And, and one of the things, by the way, is, you know, standard, standard contract terms, like in, in a lot of other spaces, you have, you have standard terms. It helps people do transactions more easily because they say, okay, we're going to do this deal and it's indexed to the S&P 500 plus or minus or indexed to 
you know, Fed funds rate, plus or minus. And, and that just facilitates, you know, better communication, more efficient transacting. You need that kind of guidepost for everyone to then think from, from within. That particular point that you made was actually really good that you made it right then, uh, Gando. Um, standardized contract terms, that's one thing that makes the CF book a much better solution than what we actually have uh, right now. And what I want to get onto, because this enable, will enable us to have a little bit more insight into the book itself, its construction, and so on and so forth. What else makes it qualify as this, what we expect to become the universal Bitcoin interest rate uh, curve or borrowing, set of borrowing rates? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same characteristics that we, you know, hold as principles for everything that we do. Uh, and they are that it's representative, replicable, and resistant to manipulation. So resistant to manipulation very easily. It's it's about integrity, and we have to have you know the proper guardrails to make sure there's no bad actors that can influence the benchmark. Representative is really a, around that it re reflects the world, right? Like we, there's there's a lot of people that have, you know when they think about some of these things, they say, oh, I'm gonna run some statistics and I'm gonna do this modeling and and look at the regression and and stuff, and that's great, but it's not always reflective of a point in time. It's like backward looking. We're trying to say that this thing is going to get published every day and it reflects what's happening today in the world, right? Agnostic to to the, the ups or downs. Sure. So the fact is we're talking about a Bitcoin interest rate. So obviously it's going to be quite convoluted. Nevertheless, I think in principle, we can we can sort of get at the ideas behind the mechanics, if you like. So how do we actually represent that you know, economic reality that you're speaking about? How does the, how is the bird put together? So I'm a guy who's got, you know, hopefully one day, maybe 10 Bitcoins. So the question, the, the question for me is what can I do with those Bitcoins, right? Every day I wake up and, and they're sitting there and I wish I can do something with them, right? So what do I do? The one thing I can do that's, you know, very straightforward is I can go lend it to somebody else. Why would anybody want to borrow Bitcoin? Because maybe they're a hedge fund and they need to collateralize their accounts across multiple exchanges. They're not going to go buy like a thousand Bitcoins. They just borrow them and to, to collateralize their accounts to then trade everywhere. So, or maybe they might have another reason that they want to borrow Bitcoin. So the most obvious thing is, you know, I go lend it to someone and obviously how much I charge them for that is a function of how credit worthy they are. Are they going to give me my Bitcoins back or not? So. That is what we're reflecting using the OTC contributors. So we're engaging with OTC players that are engaged in the lending and borrowing of Bitcoin, and we're bringing that information every day into the rate. So that's one thing I can do as a holder of Bitcoin. Can you tell me about the terms that I can borrow this at this rate? Is it just a day, or is it fully across uh, the, what we know as the curve? Yeah, so we're we're trying to reflect the the, the value over time. So essentially. How much can I earn with my Bitcoins if I lend it out for a week? How much if I lend it out for, we have one, two, three weeks. We have for like a month. We have two, three months, four months, five, all the way to six months, to five months. And and so what that really gives people is that sort of the the, the value over time, the whole term structure of, uh, of, of the asset, right? And it gives people a more complete version of not just you know, the more immediate term, which has like liquidity and some other things that, that factors that play into it. It gives them an idea about sort of the medium term as well. If I give away my Bitcoin for, you know, five months, how much can I earn? 
and and sort of that that is obviously governed by liquidity and and what we can observe in the market because we want to reflect things that are actually like trading every day there's activity every day nothing that's like esoteric and you know something happens like once in a blue moon sure one more thing i think gabe wants to come in but there's one more thing about the inputs um so we understand that there are otc lenders um in terms of the sort of maybe the slightly longer term rates um we are probably looking at the cme the regulated um uh, uh, futures marketplace for Bitcoin as one of the major yeah. uh, contributors, right? Yeah, so so that comes to this sort of our second major source of, of data that we're looking at. So I said, if I have Bitcoin, I can just go lend it to somebody, right? That's one thing I can do with it. The other thing I can do with it is I might go collateralize myself on an exchange like the CME or another crypto exchange. And we have a cohort of exchanges that we're pulling data from and say, okay, actually, I see that the spot is trading below the one month. So there's contango in the market. That means that I can buy the spot, sell the future at like maybe it's $100 worth uh, of a premium, and I can wait for a month and these two converge at the end of the expiry of the future, and I've just collected $100. And I can convert these $100 back to Bitcoin, add them to my stash, and I just now ended up with more Bitcoins in a month than I started with today. So that's another thing as a Bitcoin holder that I can do to earn more Bitcoin. And we're trying to bring that information through the transactions that are happening on the exchanges to feed back into this rate, because that is valuable information that people need, need to know to at least start thinking about the risk reward of, of what they can do with their Bitcoins over time. When we look at the consensus mechanisms and the trends that we've seen over the past few years, a lot has switched over to this proof of stake model. Last year we had Ethereum, the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap, also make that switch from proof of work to proof of stake. Bitcoin is, you know, uh, it's the OG. And I think it's fair to say that the foundation is going to, or the Bitcoin developers are going to maintain the proof of work at a consensus mechanism. So it's very important to kind of understand why this uh, this novel concept of providing a grounded kind of index on Bitcoin interest rates it unlocks another another angle for Bitcoin holders in the long run to add some sort of uh, coupon generation, some sort of yield generation, which changes the risk return profile slightly to to be more advantageous. So. Um, while other tokens, of course, the newer ones are going to be using these proof of stake, you know, these liquidity pools, and they're going to be, you know, locking them up and generating some yield that way by, uh, you know, validating these transactions. Bitcoin holders, this is kind of like a new, a whole new area, a new, a new playing field for them to kind of participate and try and, and, and get some sort of, you know, additional coupon generation. Yeah, because there's no, there's no central bank that you can go put, you know, Satoshi Central Bank, where you can go put your Bitcoins and then six months later, it gives you your Bitcoins back and like some more. We, we wish that existed. It doesn't. So in, in the absence of that, what's going to happen is you're going to have, you know, DeFi or traditional finance participants come and, and say, okay, we're going to, if you give us your Bitcoin, we can go replicate the BERG, follow the methodology. And if the Burke is saying that you get like 3% or 4%, you're going to get that 3 or 4%. So you're going to have these 
intermediaries that emerge that can execute this efficiently and then offer it to people that have their Bitcoins, whether they are maybe like clients of the banks or maybe clients of a, a smart contract where you can deposit your Bitcoin, similar to an AMM, but just more sophisticated and, and more involved, I guess, because you're trading through time uh, and you're able to like forward hedge some of these things. So in the same way that you can deposit your Bitcoin and get more Bitcoin net out at the end. So it's pretty exciting. I I want to put my 0.001. Uh, we, we, we all do. Um, now, you know, just a riff on that a little bit. It's sort of like the idea that as an institution for the very first time, you can come to this market and actually execute um, a strategy of that nature, the, the one that you described so eloquently, uh, Gando, and know that um, you've excluded all of the risk um, in terms of the counterparty, in terms of the price, in terms of non-standardization, um, and you, really it's just down to your skill. Yeah, you, you've excluded most of the risk. So, so we are dealing with, you know, a handful of exchanges, a handful of OTC participants. So we're we're trying to keep it as so there's no risk free because there is no like central bank. No. Um, but but this is trying to kind of take away most of that counterparty risk. There's still some some risk baked in there, but you know that's that's what we're working with because there the Satoshi Central Bank doesn't exist. Okay. Speaking of uh, Satoshi Central Banks and the keyword you know, being central, I think, you know, a lot of the community in crypto is always focused on this concept of being decentralized. And this is, I think, an interesting topic that maybe you can touch on a little bit is how does the, how can the Burke fit into a decentralized finance world? You know, what are some opportunities for maybe oracles to reference it? Or, you know, you could probably, if you come to mind, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the activity on DeFi is, you know, at times, pricing things, there's pricing of, of sort of what I would generally call like credit markets, right? Borrowing and lending activity, the liquidity pools, yield farming, all of these things actually fall under that umbrella of credit markets, right? And so far, all of these things are being priced as, you know, it's 9% or it's 90% or, and, and numbers sort of just getting plucked out of like the, the specific tokenomics at times that are like make sense, but at times, you know, they're just sort of like the number that works at the moment in time. And because you have some bad apples, what that causes to the user is the user's like, well, what's, why is it this rate, not that rate? Like, how's, how does that compare to this? And what we're trying to give the DeFi community also is, and, and we have, you know, this, this rate, by the way, was developed in association with Chainlink. It's already kind of accessible on Chainlink's Oracle network. And that enables DeFi to say, hey, user, I am offering you this risk, this reward, and the yield is Burke plus 7%, right? So so now somebody can look at that and say, okay, I'm getting, getting this like bump of Burke, let's say Burke is 3% plus 7%, so I'm getting 10%. So I'm getting 7% over the Burke. So now what kind of risks am I taking in this protocol to deserve that incremental 7%? And that transparency is huge and it's severely lacking today. And I think it's going to go a long way in just getting that traction on trust and people having more transparency and more price discovery on what they're signing up for and what they're getting out of it. Mm. Now, we, we, we've touched on um, what we're getting into changes of regimes of all kinds here, whether purposeful or you know inadvertent. And naturally, I mean, thinking about the current um, 
regime, the regulatory regime that overlooks our industry. Um, it looks like before too long, and this term has been mentioned several times now, particularly out of Washington, the concept of the qualified cost custodian um, could become the norm. Now, in that kind of environment, with not just that sort of like mechanism in place, but maybe looking at that as a good example, how would the CF Burke sit? How would it work? Would it be any different? What would be the implications for the for an interest rate of that nature? Yeah, so we obviously keep a close eye on the regulations, as, as, as you guys know, and it, essentially it would limit your choice of who you can custody your Bitcoin with as you're executing some of these, you know, the, the methodology essentially. You're having to transact on exchanges, so some participants are only able to transact on the CME, uh, and with the new regulations, participants may be limited to having certain custodians to custody their assets, and that naturally sort of limits the sort of service providers they can work with, but it should get you at the end of the day to the same answer or something very, very close. Now, let's um, look at a world a little bit into the future where the CF Burke does become, or, you know, it's on the verge of becoming, it really makes rapid strides to becoming the de facto universal Bitcoin lending rate. What would that world look like, very broadly speaking, in terms of the facilities that would be available? The use cases that would be possible um, are going forward in that future. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the most obvious one and, and sort of the most important one in some ways is if I want to lend you my Bitcoin for a year, right? At the moment, I'm like, yes, uh, 7%, maybe it should be 8 I don't know, it, uh, you know, but I sign with you at like 8%, maybe the world changes in a couple of weeks, right? And maybe you think 8% is like, oh, I'm going to commit to 8% for the whole year. What if the world changes? And as you've seen, our world keeps changing very quickly these days. What this allows us to do is to say, we're going to sign a contract. I'm going to lend you my Bitcoin and it's going to be Burke, let's say the one month Burke plus 4%. So therefore, we've established that you're willing to pay a premium above Burke at 4%, and I'm happy for that to come be my compensation. And now Burke can float, and our contract can be you know, a function of the changing world. So we don't have to commit and, and you know, be stuck with our decision today. We can have that flexibility where our contract is floating against the Burke. It's Burke plus. And, and as the world changes, then... You know, it might be three plus four today, or it might be ten plus four if the world changes significantly. And what that what that gives me as a lender, it gives me confidence that I'm not getting screwed. I'm not gonna have uh, FOMO in uh, in a couple of months. That oh my god, the world changes. I could have gotten way more for my for my bitcoins. Uh, it just gives me that assurance, and it and it makes sure that you're paying me a fair price throughout the term of the agreement. And we've already heard that from OTC players that are in the act in in the borrowing side of things. They're saying, yeah, we, we'd be more comfortable to, you know, borrow Bitcoin on longer term horizons if the rate is floating, not fixed. You, you know, Gando, I would say if if there's any other specific use cases that you see that uh, we haven't touched on yet that you think are worth highlighting, glad you asked again. Yeah, glad you asked. Yeah, there's there's definitely one more. I, uh, there's definitely a lot more actually. But the 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 foundation, as I said, is that you know core sort of physical borrowing and lending activity. 
And that is our primary purpose because that, that benefits really everyone in the ecosystem. You know, DeFi users are going to have transparency. Institutions are going to be able to go to their treasury and say, yeah, we're not making a number up, like it's sort of benchmark to this as a spread to this. So, so that is the core, you know, functionality. Now, once you have that functioning properly, then you can start having derivatives markets building on top of that, right? So you can have, say, you know, I, I lent you my, same with like mortgage markets, right? Like I, I lent you my Bitcoin at Burke plus 4%. Maybe Burke has moved up to, to 10%. Now I want to lock it in so I can go into the derivatives markets, transact through like a structured product or uh, an exchange traded derivative to lock in the 10%. So my contract with you has not changed, but I can, if Burke goes up, maybe I want to lock it in before it goes back down. And, and that enables me to do that. So essentially what that means is you start having risk management solutions giving people exposures that they want and need or mitigating exposures that people are worried about. So all of these participants in the ecosystem, they can index to Burke, and then now they have the option to use these instruments to hedge in and out of Burke, which is unlocks options markets, you know, interest rate swaps, and, and various things that will come to the ecosystem in, in, in time. This is just the foundational piece that we're starting with. Sure. So, so I mean, the main takeaway that I'm getting from this uh, really instructive uh, chat, uh, Gando and Gabe, is um, essentially that, you know, I think people need to grasp the significance of something like this. Um, and, you know, there's something like this is actually the CF benchmarks interest rate curve. Um, it is essentially the key to unlocking um, the next phase of the well, you could say cryptocurrency, you could say Bitcoin, whereas you, you know, your your mileage may vary. But without that facility, without that universal benchmark facility, a trusted lending rate, I mean, we really are, you know, basically thinking that you cannot actually have the further development of of the kind, including some of uh, the, um, the 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 sort of instruments that would be possible once you do have that lending rate. I think that's about a size of it, right? Yeah, and 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 I mean that that markets, you know, people when we loosely say like, you know, this this can unlock like the credit markets or the debt market side of the whole crypto ecosystem. That's really really important because that debt markets in the in the traditional world are over three hundred trillion in size or maybe a bit less now, with with the tightening, but they're enormous. And and why should people care? Because debt markets is your mortgage. Debt markets is your auto loan. That markets is your credit card. All of these things are made possible by this functioning of these credit markets that are able to allow people to come in and have a slice of risk and a slice of reward, not the whole risk and the whole reward. Exactly. So, so, so essentially, you cannot actually have a fully functioning, fully uh, diversified and universal debt market without a fully functioning universal Bitcoin interest rate curve. If we're talking about that, that's exactly right, and and right. and the credit mar- the development of the credit markets will make the ecosystem as a whole better overall. You, it will bring more people in, it will increase adoption, it will increase people's you know part of our mission is the economic freedom. It will mm. you know allow people to parse risk and reward in a way that gives them more more tools in, in the toolbox to to ultimately manage their uh, their personal finance. Absolutely. Well, Gando, I feel that we've covered pretty much everything. 
all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much again to uh, Gando, our head of product, for educating us about uh, the CFO. Great to be here, Ken. Thank you. And uh, do come back again uh, sometime soon. And of course, uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Gabe Selby, uh, thanks a lot for your contributions as well. Thanks, Ken. Great to have you, Gando. Yeah, we got to get you back ASAP. Don't, you know, don't be a stranger. Thanks, guys. And uh, thank you guys again for listening in for the latest episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. See you again soon.